All right, First John chapter 3, beginning of verse 11. If you've arrived there, uh, will you stand as we read God's Word together? First John and chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, and again we'll be reading through verse 24. Hear what the Word of God says. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. And the one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion for him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. And I've tagged this morning's sermon, Love Lived Out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, I pray two things, God. First, I pray that we would see how magnificent your love is for us. And the second thing, God, is that as a result, we would live lives marked by love. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure you may have noticed that I moved to the floor. It's not that there's anything wrong with the stage. It's that I'm trying to make it so that our family who is watching on the camera can actually see my very white bald head, uh, which normally this window seems to block out. So we're going to give this a shot. So down here with you, uh, try to make eye contact with you. Some of your faces are hidden, but I'm, I'm trusting that you're engaging in this word with me. But love lived out. You know, in 2008, a remarkable thing happened at a Starbucks in Tacoma, Washington. I would say that A lot of good things happen at Starbucks, just not their coffee. But a remarkable thing happened at a Starbucks in Tacoma, Washington. There was a lady in her mid-50s. This is a true story. There was a lady in her mid-50s named Anne Marie Asnes. And she had been visiting this Starbucks for many years. And when she came in each morning behind the counter, there was usually the same barista named Sandy Anderson. 
Now, over the course of the years, as Anne-Marie was visiting this Starbucks, they began to develop a little bit of a relationship. They, were, they began to become quite familiar with one another, at least some of those details that you learn in, in, in small conversations spread out over a little bit of time. And so their small talk began to turn into brief updates about life and their family members and their husbands and how, how things were going. But on a particular visit, Anne-Marie made it known that she was actually in need of a kidney transplant. You see, she had polycystic kidney disease. And she told Sandy that she was hopeful because all of her family was being tested to see if they were a a match. And Anne-Marie left the conversation at that. You know, as time went on, Anne-Marie got the news that none of her family was going to be a match for her. And so she decided that she wouldn't share that information with anyone. She would simply quietly, with reserve, go onto the transplant list and wait and hope that she would, she would get a kidney. At a follow-up conversation with her doctor, Anna Marie, she told her doctor that she wasn't going to tell anyone. And the doctor told her that, in fact, she should tell people that her family wasn't a match and that she still needed a kidney. And the doctor told her that the reason that you should tell is because you never know where a kidney will come from. You never know who will be moved by love to donate. Now, in some regard, by Anna Marie's own admission, she didn't believe that that would happen. She just assumed she would have to get a kidney from an organ donor, not from this random person who was moved by love to give a kidney. Nevertheless, she decided to honor her doctor's wishes, which I'm learning more and more from my wife, is normally a good idea to listen to your doctor and follow their advice. And so, on one of her visits to her normal Starbucks to get her short drip double cup morning drink, she shared with Sandy the news that none of her family had matched and she was waiting for a kidney. And in that moment, Sandy quietly made a decision to herself. She was going to go get tested to see if she was a match. She did not grow up with Anna Marie. They were not super close friends. Their interactions consisted of short bursts of conversations as they waited for the coffee to be ready. Still, for some reason, Sandy felt compelled. A few days later, Sandy got the news that her blood type was a match for Anna Marie. And the next time Anna Marie came in, Sandy reached over the counter, grabbed her arm, and told her, I'm a match. And in the end, Sandy ended up donating her her kidney to Anna Marie. And through this experience, the two became very dear friends, and Anna Marie often recounts the love of Sandy for what was at the time basically a stranger in a Starbucks. Now, I don't know about you, but stories like that typically get me. Like they, I, I like stories like that. I mean, even as I was looking for an example, I got caught up. I had to stop because I remembered I had to continue to write a sermon. But, but I just got caught up in reading these stories this week all over the Internet. I just Googled sacrificial love and was just enthralled with the stories that came pouring on my computer screen. But the reason that I think these stories tend to hit us so hard, the reason that I think they hit me so hard, is because we know that love is a powerful thing and that love is meant to be lived out. There's something about those stories 
that I would argue, even subconsciously at times, they point us to the reality that there is a love that flows from a kingdom that is, that is not of this world. And that love, that, that love is powerful. Love changes things. And we, as Christians, as we walk out and live this true Christian life, we ought to be the greatest examples of this love to a world that is moved by it and needs it. And in our text this morning, what we see is actually John, as he is continuing to flesh out for his readers what it looks like to live the true Christian life, we we see John call his readers to live out love. And so in our text, John gives some details about this love, some details that that you and I need to know if we are going to be faithful to live love out in our daily lives. And so what John does is he prescribes for us five essential truths as we consider this idea of love as it relates to a believer. Five essential truths about love that we must grasp if we are going to be faithful to live this Christian life. So here is the first truth this morning. Love is essential. Love is essential. Look again at verses 11 and 12. John writes, for this is the message that we have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And then he says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So right off the bat, right off the bat, as John begins speaking about this idea of love in verse 1, he makes it abundantly clear to us that love is essential. It is not an optional reality for believers. But what John does is so significant because in essence, track with me here, what he does is he takes Jesus' summation of the law from Matthew 22 37 through 39. We, we know that when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what John does is he takes this command of Jesus and John reminds us that Jesus isn't creating something new with that command. That's not a New Testament only command. It's not that they never knew to love God and love people, but Jesus shows up on the scene and now they get it. No, the the idea of love, this idea of loving others, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And the example that John gives in verse 2 is from all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 when we watched love break down. You see, this idea of loving one another has always been essential for humanity. The expectation did not begin when Jesus said those words in Matthew 22. It has always been the expectation of God's creation of humanity. Humanity was created to love, but we know that sin tainted that. And we know specifically how it tainted it in regards to how we love one another because of Genesis chapter 3 and 4. But but what I want to do is I'll flip back. I actually want to read this account in Genesis chapter 4 for just a moment. So Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. This is is the story of of Cain and Abel. And and listen listen to what Moses records here. Moses wrote Genesis if you didn't know. He says this, the man, that's Adam, was was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became 
a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious and he looked despondent. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, when sin crept in way back in Genesis chapter 3, it not only destroyed our relationship with God, it wasn't simply that we could no longer love God correctly. Sin also destroyed our relationship with one another, and that's what we see in Genesis chapter 4, which is why loving people is so hard. Loving people is hard. It's why Cain murdered his brother Abel because with sin came a lack of love. But the expectation, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because the expectation has always been, even from the very beginning, that we would be a people marked by love. And this this truth speaks to why the call for believers to love is so significant. Why our call to love is so significant? Because listen, our call to love as believers, and I want you to hear me, it has kingdom significance. Our call to love has kingdom significance. You see, you are not simply called to love because it's the nice thing to do. No, the the kingdom of God is a kingdom where love flows. The kingdom is rooted in love. Listen to me, it was God's love for you that stayed his hand when we first sinned so that we did not immediately face judgment. It was God's love for you that led him to send his son. It was Jesus' love for you which allowed him to endure the cross. It was God's love which called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. It was God's love that took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. It was God's love that made the scales fall off your eyes and your dull ears open. It is God's love that keeps you even though you continue to sin. It is God's love that will see you safely through to the other side. It is God's love that allows you to dwell with him for all eternity. It has always been God's love and God is love. His kingdom is established and rooted in love. And the reason the call for us to love is so essential is because our love is a reflection of the kingdom we are called to be a part of. And the kingdom that is not of this world nor dependent on this world. We are part of another kingdom. We are redeemed to be a part of that kingdom. But the reason that God has left you here is because you are an ambassador for that kingdom and God is making his appeal to others through you and the world will know that you are his. 
The world will know that you are of another kingdom, not because of what you say. Please hear me. The world will know that you are of another kingdom, not because of what you say, not because of the songs you sing, not because you show up here Sunday after Sunday. No, the world will know that you are of God's kingdom when you love like God loves. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. In 1 Peter 4, 8, we're told by Peter, Peter, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul wants us to see God is trying to communicate to us how paramount love is. I mean, that's an incredible list, is it not? Speaking angelic tongues, but I don't love. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all, not some, all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have a faith that can move a mountain, I want that faith, but I don't have love. It's pointless. You see, love in the life of a believer is essential, and our love should set us apart. This leads to the second truth that John communicates to us this morning. That, that the second truth is this, that love distinguishes us from the world. So love is essential, number one, and number two, love distinguishes us from the world. Look again at verses 12 through 15. John says, unlike Cain... So he's just given the command for us to love. And he says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? This is interesting because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then John goes on and says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. Now, now we have to understand what this comes on the heels of. Because it, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, which Pastor Lance preached on last week, there was a division made. There is a division between the children of God and the children of the devil. God makes that clear that not everyone is his child. But that section ends with this statement in verse 10. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. And so that statement in verse 10 serves as a transition into our text. So John says that the children of God will do what is right. The children of the devil will not. And the chief right thing that distinguishes the children of God from the children of devil is our love. You know, we talked about this early in the series, but riddled throughout Scripture is the call to be distinct from the world. 
We saw it in 1 John 2, chapter 50, or 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Paul contends in Romans 12 too, a verse that many of us know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And listen to this one. As Jesus is praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, he prays this in verses 15 and 16. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered? Because I have, and maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the way my mind works. Have you ever wondered what it is that makes us look different from the world? You know, in Acts chapter 9, as Paul is persecuting and trying to arrest Christians, he called them people of the way. What was the way? What is it that distinguishes us? Because all throughout Scripture, we have a call to be distinct from the world, to be different from the world. What is it that is supposed to make us different? Is it that we show up here on Sundays? Is it that we pray prayers? Is it that we read this book that we claim to be God's word? Which it is, for the record. Is that what distinguishes us from the world? No, I don't, I don't think that's what it is. It is that we have experienced the love of God made known through the work of Jesus, and as a result, we love differently. We love God differently, and we love people differently. We love because he first loved us, and this truth sets us apart from the world. And in a sense, it says that right there in the text, doesn't it? Because why did Cain want to kill Abel? Because Abel was righteous and Cain was not. Why does the world hate us? Because the world is unrighteous and we are called to be righteous. But for us, we are called to love, to be distinct from a world. Our world hates, we love. And, and I got to be honest with y'all for just a minute. I need to to tell you, and somebody who is here in this place or maybe watching right now, maybe you need to hear this. Right now for the church in America that we are a part of, we are not distinguished by our love. We have a problem right now in the American church. And again, we are a part of it. I know we want to claim our autonomy and we want to say, listen, new breed gets it right. But the reality is we are part of the global church. And the global church as it's represented in America has a problem right now. Perhaps there's someone listening or watching who's perpetuating the problem. You know, this past week I listened to a sermon by a pastor. I try to listen to sermons throughout the week that would just kind of serve me because I try to preach the word to myself, but you know it. There's something different about me standing up here and preaching and hearing somebody preach. Well, maybe you don't know because a lot of you haven't preached before, but it's a very different thing. I need to be preached to as well. So I was thankful for last week, Pastor Lance preaching. I'm thankful for next week, Pastor Lance is preaching. I need to be preached to as well. But I try to listen to some sermons. And I was listening to a pastor. He was out of L.A. A gifted brother. I mean, amazing pastor. He's been doing this for a long time. But as he was preaching, he talked about a problem. And I'm going to steal it because I like how he said it. It's not original to me. But he says that the problem with the American church is something called versusism. Versusism. And what he means when he says versusism is this mentality, right, that it's us versus them. 
See, right now in Christianity, we are defined by what we disagree with. Right? It's the right versus the left. It's the liberal versus the conservative. It's the Democrat versus the Republican. It's the fundamentalist versus the evangelical. It's this denomination versus this denomination. It's preach the gospel versus do justice. But then we take it a step further, don't we? Because not only do we have versusism, but we use versism to justify our versusism. Meaning we take one verse out of scripture that supports our idea. We've got our scripture. They've got their scripture. And then we go at it and we see who's on top. But I want you to hear me. The problem is not that there are differences. There's nothing wrong with denominational differences. There's nothing wrong with being a Democrat or being a Republican. I'm going to stop there and not press into the other ones right now because I'd have to flesh that out and explain it. But there is nothing wrong with differences. But the problem is that we justify our hatred for people. We justify our lack of love for people simply because of the fact that we disagree with them. We have taken this posture that if you don't agree with me, I have license to despise and hate you. And I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, that's what the world does. That's their M.O., Tell the world that something about their lifestyle is sinful and see how they respond. And listen, it's a dangerous game when the church starts taking its cues from the world. You know, we have tried to use all, we have used differences to justify our hate. The church has used differences to justify our hate. Well, you may be thinking, well, I don't hate these people. Well, let me just say this. If you don't love them, what is left? Because in this text, I see no in-between. And I think you can check, too. I'm going to give you a, a test. Go back over your social media posts over the last two years and see if the world knows more about what you disagree with or more about what you love. I mean, you may be thinking, well, you know, Michael, it's not my fault that they are wrong. They, they don't know. And somebody has to correct them. Well, you, you may be right about that, but let me remind you of something. You have no right to hate someone because they get things wrong. You have no right to hate the racist. You have no right to hate the one who calls out racism. You have no right to hate the Republican. You have no right to hate the Democrat. I said it. You have no right to hate the conservative. You have no right to hate the liberal. You have no right to hate the Baptist, the Presbyterian. The non-denominational, the Catholic, you have no right to hate anyone because, hear me, there was a time when you did not know what you now know and the only reason you know what you know is because you have known the one who makes all things known. Let me put that another way. You ain't nothing without Jesus. You ain't nothing without Jesus. Any understanding that you have, any maturity that you can claim, any correct thinking you have is not because you are so great and wise. It is because God has loved you. And God has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. And I'd be willing to bet that I could get a witness to that in this room. That there was a time where you did not think the right thing that you think now. There is a time you did not understand righteousness like you understand it now. There was a time you did not love God like you love him now. You ain't nothing without Jesus. And this should push us to love. To love so strongly that we are distinct from this world. 
But I want you to hear me say this. It is not enough to simply say that we love different. Our love should look different. This leads to the third truth this morning that I believe John wants us to see. The third truth about love is that love, love demands action. Love demands action. This is what John is saying in verses 16 through 18. He says this. Verses 16 through 18. This is how, I'm sorry. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. Let me read that again. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but listen to this, but in action and in truth. Right? So so check this out. This These are some incredible verses of scripture right here. So what John does is he grounds our love in God's love. John uses God's love as an example for what our love looks like. He says, he laid down his life for us. Now listen to me. This is not merely a divine action to adore. This is an example to follow. This is an example to follow. He roots our action in the example set by God himself. And look at what he says next. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We cannot neglect the fact that God's love led him to move. Listen, that that was the amen moment right there. That we cannot neglect the fact that God's love led him to move. You missed it twice. We cannot neglect the fact that God's love led him to move. Amen. Amen. Help me out, brothers and sisters. You know, I learned this. this is a cool trick. We should always pair 1 John 3.16 with John 3.16. They help us understand the full picture here. Because John 3.16 tells us, so many of you all know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But don't overlook this, for God so loved the world, here it is, that he gave. He moved, he acted. His love was not merely an emotion in his mind and in his heart. For God so loved that he gave. He acted, he moved, love demands action. And therefore, John says, we should love like him. He acted in laying down his life. We too should lay down our lives, not out of a sense, not out of a sense of duty and responsibility, but because of love. God did not give his son out of a sense of duty and responsibility. He owed us nothing. He moved because he loved. He was motivated by love. And we too should be motivated by love because we have experienced the love of God which should compel us to love like Him. Now, a couple of things I want to point out about these verses in particular. First, notice who the love that we are called to display is directed towards. 
at least initially, first and foremost, it's directed at other believers. He says we should also lay down our lives for who? Our brothers and sisters. He's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about the other children of God. See, one commentator notes this. He says, love for fellow believers is evidence of conversion. A love for fellow believers is evidence of conversion. And this goes back to something that we have said over and over and over because we've seen it in Scripture over and over and over. You cannot love God and hate His people. You cannot love God and have a disdain for His church. We have to love one another specifically in the body of Christ. Because let's be honest for a minute, fam. If we can't love those who are like us, who think like us, who believe like us, who have been redeemed like us, if we can't love our brothers and sisters, how in the world are we going to love a lost world? But, But the second thing I want to pull out is this. I want you to notice what laying down your life actually entails. Because check this out. He... John ties our, the, the laying down of our life to how Jesus laid down his life. But then John takes it a step further in verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? So John takes laying down your life to mean more than simply a willingness to die for people. That's very important. That when, when, when he talks about us laying down our life, he is talking about more, not less than, but more than simply being willing to lay down our life for someone else. It entails a willingness to live a life of love for other people. Now, you see, laying down your life may require you to physically die. It did for Jesus. But laying down your life might also mean laying down your desires or laying down your money or laying down your time, or laying down your emotional comfort, or laying down your energy in order to love someone else. And what John is trying to do is he's trying to take this idea of loving others and move it from the abstract to the practical. Here's what I mean by that. Because if we keep this idea of loving others in the abstract, we can talk about loving people. We can like the idea of loving other people without actually loving people. And John's trying to draw this out because there's a very interesting thing that happens. You can even see it in the English version of your Bible, but it's present in the Greek as well. Is that in verse 16, he talks about loving in the plural sense. Lots of people, brothers and sisters. But then when he gets to verse 17, he's speaking in the singular. He's talking about one person. He's trying to take it from this abstract concept and make it really practical for us. Because again, we can like the idea of loving people. We can talk about loving people without actually loving people. G.P. Lewis said this, and I love this. He says, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. You know anybody like that? But listen to this last line that he says. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So the question that we have to ask is not necessarily, do I love those around me? The question that we should ask is, how am I loving those around me? 
Because God showed his love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved the world, so he gave. He gave of himself. Love demands action. But here's the amazing thing, brothers and sisters. The amazing thing is that as we love, it produces something in us. This leads to the, the fourth truth, truth. And I'm actually going to try to bring this home. I'm just kind of looking at my notes, and I probably wrote a little bit more than we have time for. So I said five truths. I'm going to kind of combine them both into this one truth. So we're going to go with four truths about this text. Here's the fourth, fourth truth, the two of them kind of put together. Let's say this. Let's say love provides assurance. Love provides assurance. Look with me at verses 19 through 24. John writes, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his commands that we believe in the name of, the, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in them. And the way we know that he remains in us is through the spirit that he has given us. So in these final verses, I think we could make the argument that John is giving us some assurances that we have as a result of our obedience to love. And there, there are three of them I see here in the text, three assurances that we have because we love. Here's the first assurance. Our ability to love gives us assurance that we are in Christ. Our ability to love gives us assurance that we are in Christ. Again, in verse 19, he says, this is how we will know. What's the this, right? Well, that goes back to verse 18. If we love in word, or not in, in just word, not just in what we say, but if we love in action and in truth, he says, then this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. And what John is getting at is that there are times in the Christian's life, again, we're family, let's be transparent with one another. There are times in the Christian life when doubts come in. There are times when that voice just won't stop in our head that perhaps we are not God's children. Perhaps we are not redeemed. I know I can't be the only one who's been there. And what John wants us to see is that when we love like Christ loves, when we love like the Father loves, when we are willing to lay down our lives for others, it is a testimony to our own hearts and minds that God has saved us. Why? Because no one can sustain a love like God's unless they have first experienced the love of God. Nobody can sustain that. I'm not saying that lost people can't do nice things. I'll be honest with you, some of the nicest people I know are lost. I don't know if that's an indictment on us or not. But see, you can't sustain this kind of sacrificial love unless you have experienced the love of God. I was going to say something else, but I'll refrain for the moment. But here's the second assurance that we have. Our ability to love gives us assurance that God hears our prayer. That's incredible. That, that our 
ability to love gives us assurance that God hears our prayers. You say, well, where do you see that, Michael? Well, it's in verses 21 and 22. Dear friends, if our hearts condemn us, we have confidence for, before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. And so the question becomes, well, how is this true? Are you trying to say to me, Michael, that if I, if I just am obedient enough, God's going to give me everything I want? Well, that's not necessarily what John's getting at here. See, when we are walking in obedience, when we are seeking to live the true Christian life and love like God loves, it means that we will be walking in step with him. And when we walk in step with him, it means that our hearts will be longing for and praying for the things that God's heart is already fixed on. We can pray with confidence, believing that God will hear and that God will respond. Dr. Van Ness said, like, said it like this in his commentary. He says, the confidence of a conscience cleared by grace leads to effective prayer. Now, I, I know we're, we're running out of time this morning. I'm going to chalk it up to having a week off. I just forgot timing, but that's all right. Thank you, but if you'll give me just a few minutes of liberty here, I, I promise I'll be in my seat, but let me, I just, listen, I know we're going to come to prayer in First John. I think it's going to be the sermon right after Easter is when we'll talk about prayer because John talks about prayer, but if you'll let me, I, I want to just say a few things about prayer this morning. If I'm honest, I think that many of us and many churches are lacking in prayer and it shows. It shows. You know, in both Matthew 21 and in Luke 19, Jesus refers to his house as a house of prayer. This would be known as a house of prayer. The early church, when you look at how they lived and how they operated in light of receiving the Spirit and walking with Jesus, it says that they devoted themselves to prayer. They prayed together. They still went to the temple and prayed together. All throughout Acts, you read of Peter and John went to the temple and pray. This person and that person went to the temple to pray. They gathered themselves together and they prayed. The early church was marked by devoting themselves to prayer. They were a house of prayer. And what happened? What has happened to, to Christians since then? Because the sad thing is, brothers and sisters, if you want to watch a church die a little bit on the inside, call a prayer meeting and watch nobody show up. But do you know what a church and do you know what the people of God need in order to live this Christian life? We need prayer. And make no mistake about it, prayer is paramount. You know, I've been in ministry for a little while now. I think I'm coming into my 13th year of ministry. And there are a few lessons that I've learned in ministry that will always stick with me. Some of them taught to me by my father, but I'm not going to talk about those ones because I don't want to give him a big head this morning. But one of the lessons that I learned early on in ministry came in South Carolina from a sweet elderly woman at a church where I was serving as a pastor. Not the lead pastor, but a pastor there. And so I had the opportunity to preach. I was being trained to be, to be a, a pastor and to lead a church in kind of the lead pastor role. And this, this sweet lady, I will never forget her face. She has since gone home to be with the Lord. But she was in her late 80s, maybe early 90s at the time. And I had just finished preaching a sermon. And I ain't going to front. It was a good sermon. At least I thought it was a really good sermon. See, one of the things that you grow in immaturity as a preacher is you stop thinking all your sermons are good. But at the time, I thought it was a good sermon. 
And this lady pulled me aside and she said this. She said, you know, I can see something in you. That throughout your ministry, your sermons will move people. And we will need that at times. But then she said this. But she said, but never forget that prayer will move the heart of God. And without that, we're nothing. And that is a lesson that has stuck with me in ministry. Listen, I can preach some sermons, and at times I can move some people. I hope it's the Spirit moving people. I'm going to be honest. I could move people if I wanted to. And at times that might be needed. But prayer will move the heart of God, and without that we are nothing. And I believe that. I believe that there are people in this room today who are lacking because they fail to pray. Oh, church, but if we would pray... I believe what Charles Spurgeon said when he preached that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Our God is a God of power and God responds to prayer. And as you look through the testimony of Scripture, you cannot tell me that God, that the muscles of omnipotence are not moved when God's people pray. Because when people prayed, the earth quaked. When people prayed, God split seas. When people prayed, enemies were defeated. When people prayed, mouths of lions were shut. When people prayed, God's children stood in the fire and walked out without even a hint of the smell of smoke on them. When people prayed, the sun froze in the sky over Gibeon and the moon over Najan. When people prayed, food fell from heavens and rocks spit forth water. When people prayed, bodies were cured of lifelong illnesses. When people prayed, prison chains fell off. When people prayed, demons fled. When people prayed, the dead were raised to life. When people prayed, other people got saved. And if only we would be a people who prayed who woke up in the morning and fell on our knees. We got in our cars and we talked to Jesus. We prayed while we worked. We prayed while we played. We prayed while we eat. We prayed before we closed our eyes each night. And then we would get together and pray together some more. I believe that if the people of God will cry out to God, we will see God work in power. And we have assurance that God hears our prayers. Therefore, we go into his throne room boldly. Not because we are so great because of what Christ has done. And we enter his throne room and we plead for God to move and we get to be privileged to watch the muscles of omnipotence flex. Church, let us be a people of prayer. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. We get another assurance in this text. The third assurance that we see here is that our ability to love gives us assurance that God's Spirit is in us. Our ability to love gives us assurance that God's Spirit is in us. Look at verse 24. It says, The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the Spirit he has given us. And again, in some sense, this is similar to the first assurance that we talked about. But when we obey God, it shows that we are in him. And if we are in him, then he is in us. And the evidence of his presence in us is the very spirit of God dwelling inside of us. We are, by the grace of God, indwelt with the spirit. And what this should do is drive us not to boast in ourselves, not to say, look how great I am. 
but rather to say, look how great God is, that he would allow his spirit to dwell in me, and through the spirit's power, I am able to love like God loves. So John gives us these assurances, but but as I close, I have to show you this final thing because it's very important. I think we miss the mark if we don't talk about this. Though our love for others assures us of some things. It does. It assures us that we are in Christ. It assures us that God will hear our prayers. It assures us that God's spirit dwells within us, but it is not the ultimate assurance. Our ability to love is not our ultimate assurance. You see, John does not want us walking away thinking that our greatest assurance is our actions. Praise God. The reason that that's a praise God is because we ain't going to get it right all the time. We will fail to love like God loved. Some of us have already failed to love today. But what John wants us to see is that ultimately our confidence, our assurance is not in ourselves or our ability to love, but it's in God's love for us. That's why John says there at the end of verse 20, it's it's short in the grand scheme of this section, but it's so powerful where he says, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Praise God that God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things because our hearts will condemn us. That voice will play in our head. We will doubt, we will question, but God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. He knows who his children are. And you see, our greatest assurance, when our hearts try and tell us we are not his, our greatest assurance is not that we can love well. Our greatest assurance is that God loves us and that God has loved us so much that he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. Every sin, every failure to love is covered by his precious blood. Our hope is not in what we do or how well we love. Our hope is in what Christ has done and how well he loves. Therefore, even when we struggle, and even though we will struggle, we will, we will fail to love, we will fail to follow the command of God. Even though at this very moment you may be struggling to love, you can declare with confidence, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. We rest in God's unwavering love for us made known on the cross. On the cross, Jesus conquered, so we don't have to. And as John said in the first verse of this chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. It's done. It is done because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. We rest in His love. We find our ultimate assurance in His love. And as we do, His love for us, which again is the greatest insurance for our soul, will begin to compel us to love more like he loves. So church, let us be a people who live lives that are marked by love.